Welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Julianne Justo, and I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy with a practice site as an infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist at Prisma Health Richland Hospital. I'm pleased to be joined today by Drs. Keith Kay and Kimberly Clays for a special podcast episode produced in partnership with the SIDP Education Center, or SIDPEC. This episode is part two of a two-part continuing education series entitled Expert Updates in Gram-Negative Resistance. If you missed part one of this series, delivered as a webinar lecture previously, please hit pause and go to sidp.org forward slash SIDPEC to watch the webinar Drs. K and Clay's previously presented on this fascinating topic. This podcast episode will serve as the Q&A portion of the same learning activity and is based on questions that came directly from you, our viewers and listeners. For a bit more background on our expert speakers, Dr. Keith Kay is a professor of medicine and the director of research in the Division of Infectious Diseases at University of Michigan. He has spent his career managing hospital-acquired infections and antimicrobial resistance. His particular areas of interest relate to resistant gram-negative pathogens and the treatment and prevention of infections caused by these organisms. Julie, thank you so much for having me. And uh, Kim, I look forward to another fascinating interactive discussion with you as well as with Julie. Fantastic, thanks Keith. Our second guest is Dr. Kimberly Clays. She's an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy and an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at University of Maryland Medical Center. Her research focuses on antimicrobial and diagnostic stewardship interventions to optimize treatment of bacterial infections, in particular, gram-negative infections that we're talking about today. Hi, Julie. Hi, Keith. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast and looking forward to answering these questions. And thank you both for joining us today. Uh, we're excited and fortunate to have received over 150 questions from viewers of your webinar. So there's definitely a lot of interest in continuing the conversation on this complex topic. Just to get us started, we had quite a few questions asking for your expert recommendations regarding empiric therapy. So let's start with this first. In your opinion, what is the best empiric therapy option for New Delhi metallobetalactamase or NDM carbapenem resistant um, enterobacterialis or CRE? Is it a polymyxin, a new beta-lactam beta-lactamase inhibitor, a combination, or other therapy altogether? One of the viewers also asked, is there any faith in ceftazidime avibactam plus as Tranam for metallobetalactamases? And finally, what about cefiterocol? So there's a lot to chew on there. I'll let you guys uh, kind of unpack that a little bit for a second. Go for it. So I'll go ahead and start. We're lucky that we don't see a lot of metallobetalactamases at our facility, but if we did, we would be using the combination of uh, ceftazidime, maybe Bactam or Cazavian as Trianam. And there's some new data to actually back that up. Recently, there's a prospective observational study that was published on CID. It compared Cazavian plus Estrianam to other active antibiotics in bloodstream infections caused by metallobetalactamases. And the combination of Cazavian as a Trianam was associated with lower clinical failure and 30-day mortality compared to other antibiotics. So definitely compelling data. And additionally, there's been in vitro models to determine optimal dosing in CRE for this combination. So the simultaneous administration of Estrianam, eight grams given as either a continuous infusion or two-hour infusions concurrent with Cazavi was found to actually eradicate organisms and prevent development of resistance. 
Now, speaking personally, I'm less confident about sifiderecall, but there is some in vitro data. Um, only about 60% of the organisms tested were susceptible, but I think there might be still a role for it. I'm just not aware of any strong clinical data to support its use at this time. Yeah, I actually agree with, uh, with what Kim said. Uh, just pointing out that these metallobetalactamases remain in that category of sort of unmet clinical need. And very happy that there's real data out there on ceftazimabe, bactam plus, plus estrinum. And I do think that cefitoprol might really turn into a viable option, but I do agree that uh, some early uh, resistance findings uh, do temper my excitement. And I would also like to stress what Kim said, that we're fortunate that these organisms, we mostly see NDMs here in the U.S., still are not very common. So it's unusual that we would need impure coverage, at least at the University of Michigan, for metallobetalactamase producing enterobacteriaceae. That's a great point that you bring up, Keith. Um, and that kind of goes into the other questions um, that our viewers had mentioning about how NDMs can be more prevalent internationally. If someone happens to be in a resource limited setting, what is your opinion then at that point regarding best available therapy for CRE? For example, they were proposing colistin plus an aminoglycoside or colistin plus meropenem. Again, I'm assuming here that they potentially don't have access to some of these uh, newer BLBLIs. Right, Julie. I think if we're limited to sort of our old choices, and old now means you know seven years ago or more, or six years ago or more, we're generally stuck with polymyxin-based therapy and colistin still being the most common polymyxin uh, prescribed in the world, or, although I think polymyxin B is, is um, getting more and more use. Uh, there are a few factors. If you're going to use colistin, it typically will be in combination for deep-seated or life-threatening infections, and, and for CRE, pretty much always in combination. When you're deciding your companion antibiotic for uh, your polymyxin, one thing to consider is the MIC of the organism. If by definition you have a carbapenem resistant enterobacteriaceae, it makes a difference if your MIC is in sort of that low resistance range, may, maybe an MIC of four or eight, meropenem is a good option. And there are several publications that show that outcomes are more favorable when meropenem is used in combination when the MICs are in that sort of a, a lower resistance range. Also an important thing to consider is that if you have a pathogen that is susceptible to aminoglycosides, uh, these are very viable treatment options. Uh, of course, if you're combining these with uh, a polymyxin like colistin, synergistic and compounded nephrotoxicity quickly becomes a, a treatment concern, a safety concern, and might actually be a rapidly uh, a treatment limiting. But I would say overall, the most common combination for which we have the most experience and the most published data would be the combination of a polymyxin plus meropenem. Yeah, it's absolutely um, a difficult situation, especially if you don't have some of the novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations at your disposal. I also do remember there was a little bit of discussion um, before these newer agents came out and polymyxins were really the mainstay for even consideration of triple therapy sometimes. So I know locally, this is when I was training in Chicago, we would do a polymyxin the carbapenem with the lowest MIC, alluding to what you were talking about with meropenem, and potentially even adding rifampin if drug interactions were not prohibitive. But to be honest, the outcomes with those therapies, at least published in the literature, were mixed at best. So, Another third agent would be something from the, the tetracycline class, uh, particularly right. if it has 
in vitro susceptibility, something like a, a minocycline, a tigocycline, or an arabocycline. While these may not always have the, the most favorable pharmacodynamics for bloodstream infections or sepsis, in combination, uh, there is data to show that they can, they can be quite effective in combination therapy. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And if you're, you're kind of scrounging the bottom of the barrel there, trying to come up with what we think is a, a potent combination regimen, you might find that a tetracycline-based compound might be a little bit safer than an agent like rifampin too. So, so I agree with that wholeheartedly. Fantastic. So shifting gears just a smidge, one of our listeners also had a question about empiric therapy, but they specifically asked, what is the best empiric regimen for multidrug resistant or MDR acinetobacter? And then to add on to that, can we use monotherapy for treatment of acinetobacter that is not multidrug resistant? So I'll start just by talking a little bit about MDR acinobacter, it definitely represents an area where we have a dearth of good data, and it's still one of those unmet needs with our current antibiotic armamentarium. It's difficult in the presentation to go into this in too much detail, because there's a lot of nuance, and there's really no one right answer. Um, I would say the list of agents that come to mind when I'm confronted with an MDR acinobacter are usually uh, sulbactam in the combination of ampsulbactam, what we have available to us, so a high-dose ampsulbactam to get to our sulbactam concentrations we need carbapenems, polymyxins, aminoglycosides, the tetracyclines like we were talking about in particular, minocycline, and usually in some kind of combination, which is directed towards the organism based on the susceptibility pattern. If the pathogen's resistant to ampsulbactam and, carb and carbapenems, the usual regimen I recommend would be ampsulbactam, meropenem, and polymyxin B. And that's just really based on in vitro data. I've had less experience using other combinations such as marrow, minnow, and poly B though. Yeah, those are really good points, uh, Kim. Just to sort of focus on some of the terminology and, and differentiation, whether you call an acinetobacter susceptible or multidrug resistant, I often will think about it as susceptibility to what I think are the two cornerstone treatment agents being carbapenem, like ameropenem, imipenem, or doripenem, and also a sulbactam in the U.S. that's going to come as ampsulbactam. So I think if you have, whether it's MDR or not, you know, susceptible and not meeting MDR criteria, if you have susceptibility to one of these agents, appropriately dosing these agents, I think monotherapy in general is quite reasonable. I think Kim talked a lot about the MDR pathogens, and I have a few more comments on what I would call XDR strains. And, and for the purposes of this conversation, XDR acinetobacter I consider as an acinetobacter strain that's resistant to both carbapenems and sulbactam. They typically will be resistant to pretty much everything else on a standard uh, susceptibility panel as well. And when you're dealing with these XDR strains, treatment is, is tricky. Kim uh, raised excellent points. I think uh, certainly for critically ill patients and those patients with deep-seated serious infections like uh, severe pneumonia or bloodstream infection, a uh, combination therapy is the norm. And I'd say often combinations of polymyxins plus a carbapenem, or again, as Kim reminded us, remembering about those in vitro and susceptibility results and not just looking at the interpretation of R or S, but looking at the MICs. Uh, when susceptible, uh, combinations with tigacycline or minocycline or, or possibly rivocycline, as we'll talk about a little bit later, are viable options. There are other combinations, Kim named a few, but I, I would say these polymyxin carbapenem or polymyxin uh, tetracycline derivative combinations, plus or minus uh, sulbactam, are the most typical combinations that are used. 
I would say in terms of newer agents, sifiracol is an option, but well, let's just say that things are a bit complicated when it comes <laughs> to sifiracol. And I am very much looking forward to our, I know we're going to spend some time later uh, specifically talking about sifiracol and acetylbacter. So I look forward to that. Oh yeah. We got lots of questions about sifiracol. So we're going to put a pin in that and come back to that in a little bit. But overall, I, I absolutely agree the, that this particular pathogen is, is one of our toughest challenges in the clinical setting. I can just add that our local strategy matches what, what you've both described uh, for what that's worth. So thank you very much for going down the acinetobacter pathway for a little bit. So the next question that I want to shift to is regarding the hospital-acquired pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia empiric coverage. And in particular, there is a listener that had quite a few questions with regards to utilization of double antipseudomonal coverage. They mentioned, quote, although the reasoning behind using double coverage theoretically should make sense, do we really have high-quality evidence that it is any more beneficial? It seems counterintuitive to our promotion of antimicrobial stewardship if essentially all HAPNVAP patients would meet at least one MDR risk factor with likely minimal mortality benefit and a greater ADE risk. Do you have to use double pseudomonas coverage empirically in severe HAP if local resistance to your quote go-to antipsychotic agent is less than or equal to 10%? Or are we just perpetuating the problem by double covering everyone with an aminoglycoside or fluoroquinolone add-on therapy? Holy moly, Julie, that is a loaded question. And that's an excellent <laughs> question and it's complicated and there's several parts to it. So I wanna just take a step back. And when we're talking about quote unquote double coverage, an important differentiation is whether we're talking about double coverage for empiric therapy or whether we're talking about double coverage for a confirmed pseudomonal infection. And those are two very different uh, issues. Let's focus on empiric use of double coverage, for which I feel like there's much better data to support this. Two important things to remember. The goal of empiric therapy with combination therapy is to increase the likelihood that you're providing effective, active therapy for the infecting pathogen. And by definition, in the empiric phase, you don't know what that pathogen is. This is where susceptibility rates in your ICU, if you have high rates of, of pseudomonal resistance to a broad spectrum of your anti-pseudomonal options, obviously combination therapy makes a lot of sense in that setting. Another thing to consider is how sick the patient is. And I would argue, and the guidelines do get into this, that even if you have a, a good pseudomonal susceptibilities in your ICU, um, you have most of your agents are 90% plus active, but your patient has severe sepsis and if you don't get effective therapy on board, there's a high likelihood that they are gonna die. Even in that setting where you can't afford to be wrong, where being wrong or, or missing coverage could be the difference between life and death, even in those scenarios, I think initial double coverage makes sense. And sort of those moderate to severe cases where you have someone who's not floridly septic and is, uh, can be a little bit more hemodynamically stable, those are cases where you can look at your local susceptibility rates and possibly go with a monotherapy option. Important thing to remember from stewardship perspective is these empiric recommendations and guidelines around combination therapy are only for the empiric phase. So it's not like we're committing everyone to seven or eight days or more of multi-drug gram negative therapy. So it's really for those initial few days of therapy getting quality specimens or as quality specimens as you can get 
uh, respiratory specimens can help to guide therapy and can, can try to limit the duration of time that you're using a com combination therapy. I think that familiarity with local data and development of local risk scores can help to identify patients who are at the greatest need for empiric double coverage. And these sorts of approaches are, are wonderful stewardship projects and make a lot of sense to me and can work as nice complements to published guidelines. I just want to remind people that a lot of times the most important risk factors we sometimes might forget about as we're sort of digging through the list of comorbid, comorbid conditions or where were they, how long were they in the nursing home before they went home and when was their last hospitalization. Those are important things to consider. But two other things, always look at prior micro and if they've had resistant uh, pseudomonal isolates or other resistant pathogens in the not too distant past, you're gonna have to provide coverage for those types of resistant strains. And the other issue is, is recent antibiotic exposures. And I would say over the past few months, things like quinolone exposures, beta-lactam exposures, greatly increase the risk for multi and in some cases, pan-drug resistant gram-negative strains. I'll just also mention for proven pseudomonal infection, um, I think the new guidelines have introduced a controversial recommendation that I think has also confused individuals, including myself. There are recommendations that in severe cases of pseudomonal infection, that for proven pseudomonal pneumonia, that there are situations in very ill patients where combination therapy for the treatment of pseudomonas is recommended in the, in the U.S. guidelines, interestingly, not in the European guidelines. And I would say there really is not a lot of good evidence to support this approach. I think the goal here is to prevent emergence of resistance and thus assure that you're maintaining effective therapy uh, throughout the uh, early stages of treatment. But I think that empiric double coverage, that's where we want to really not miss the opportunity to get effective therapy on board in those immediate early stages of treatment. And if we're targeting the right sort of patients, we clearly can make a huge difference uh, in terms of clinical outcomes at a sort of a population or, or unit level approach. Wow, thank you. Those are, I think, fantastic points, Keith. I appreciate you breaking that down. I feel almost like empiric pneumonia therapy continues to be a topic in and of itself. I'm sure we can make an, a whole another entire podcast episode just on that. Uh, lots to kind of dissect there. Um, I very much appreciated the comment that you also made with regards to local risk factors. I know when we read uh, the pneumonia guidelines for HAPNVAP and, and then for community-acquired pneumonia, we were struggling with what would have been potentially sweeping application of empiric double coverage at our local institution in South Carolina. So we did take the year to do a dedicated research study and develop risk factors for both first-line beta-lactam susceptible versus first-line beta-lactam resistant pseudomonas um, pneumonia, the latter of which we would then apply empiric double coverage. And I, I got to say, our local experience mirrors exactly what you said in terms of while we can get bogged down looking at 50 different potential risk factors, the strongest signals that we saw, which is similar to what's obviously been found by others in the literature, goes back to prior antimicrobial history and prior microbiology results. Um, and it can even go as far back as, as 12 months, which we saw with some of our histories for our patients. So while I know that's a lot of extra work for our listeners out there, and that may not be the answer that that one viewer was looking for, I think we will probably see more of this local risk factor identification and customization of empiric therapy moving forward.
All right, so moving on to the next question, one of our viewers was wondering how often are you using uh, Zerbaxa or Ceftolazantazobactam empirically for uh, extended spectrum beta-lactamase or ESBL coverage? Are you waiting until susceptibility results are back to use it for ESBLs? To be perfectly honest, we don't ever use it empirically for ESBL coverage or really ever for ESBL coverage, to be honest. Um, I know it's been proposed as a carbapenem sparing regimen and is in one of the upcoming Merino trials. As I mentioned during the talk, it's going to be using Cervaxa as a comparator agent to be carbapenem sparing. But at our facility, we've really kept the tight restrictions on Cervaxa or Toltaz just for MDR pseudomonas. Yeah, I agree, Kim. We've had a similar experience at U of M and, and here in southeastern Michigan. I certainly could think of some scenarios where empiric use might be appropriate, but typically not for ESBL coverage. We have used Zerbaxa for treatment of some ESBL infections, but it's usually when there's been allergies or intolerance to the carbapenems. I agree with you when, when they're uh, for a bloodstream infection or serious ESBL producing infection, we still are favoring the use of carbapenems in those defined therapeutic opportunities. Got it. Yeah, I would agree with that too. The only thing that I can think of is if the ESBL is along for the ride and I'm trying to treat uh, maybe a gnarly pseudomonas, that might be another situation, but it would definitely be the uh, rare case where I would think of Zerbaxa for, for an ESBL. Fantastic. So Kim, you mentioned the, the Merino trial and a comment and question that we got from one of our viewers was noting how the Merino trial results have been seemingly very widely incorporated into clinical practice. However, the viewer asked if and or when carbapenem sparing options could be used for ESVL infections as an alternative to exclusively recommending carbapenems for such pathogens. That's a great question. And I didn't go into the Merino trial in too much depth or really talk about ESBL sparing options too much either. I wish I had kind of more time to talk about it, but it is again one of those areas that's really nuanced and hard to get into in a very short amount of time. We are covering a lot of material, but I would say the use of other options like uh, third generation cephalosporin resistant enterobacteriaceae really depends on considerations of the source of infection, the acuity of the patient, and the underlying resistance mechanisms. So a lot of things to consider. For instance, in a patient with an ESBL infection that's localized just to a lower urinary tract, we definitely use non-carbapenem options, including even Piptazo. In patients with potential AMPC-producing organisms, such as Enterobacter, we rely on the stability of cefepime against these enzymes to avoid use of carbapenems. There's a lot of different things to discuss in terms of carbapenem sparing options, and there's very particular cases in which they are definitely appropriate. Yeah, Kim, those are excellent points as usual. Um, I'd say in addition to the urinary tract, non-carbapenem options are also appropriate. In some cases, hepatobiliary infections, also maybe catheter-related bloodstream infection when the infectious source, the catheter is removed. And I also want to remind our listeners that remember that carbapenem therapy for ESBL bloodstream infection, it's not necessarily needed for the entire treatment duration. And the Merino trial, that they certainly did not routinely use it for the duration of the uh, infectious episode. Carbapenem therapy can be de-escalated, of course, once you get those susceptibility results back. But non-carbapenem options that are active uh, certainly can be used when patients stabilize or when they clear their bacteremia. 
All right. So on that same train of alternative options, do either of you see a role for the combination of Avicaz and Meripenem? So one of our viewers wanted to know. You know, I have never used this combination. If I squint and think very hard, I suppose there might be some scenarios, but I'm not sure what that combination would offer over something like an imipenemrilobactam, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about later. But I'm interested, Kim and Julie, what, what are your thoughts about that proposed combination? Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting question. It's almost like we're just playing uh, musical chairs with some of these combinations when, when we do the mental exercise. But I agree with you, Keith. I can't unfortunately think of any scenario where I would preferentially look to Avicaz and Meripenem together. The similar combination that I could consider is Avicaz plus Estreonam, as the Estreonam would gain me um, MBL coverage. Meripenem, unfortunately, would not afford the same gain. And that's something that we kind of talked about at the beginning of this episode. Alternatively, as, as Keith mentioned, we could consider um, imipenem relobactam or meropenem vaporbactam if a carbapenem with the CRE coverage was really needed. So I'm struggling a little bit to see a, a situation where I might use Avicaz and Mero together. Yeah, I agree with both of you and everything you've said. I can't think of anything off the top of my head either. All right. So speaking about imipenem relobactam, how is it thought to be active against carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas when compared specifically to meropenem vaporbactam? I think there's still a lot for us to kind of figure out with imipenem relobactam and where it's going to fit in our armamentarium, but I think part of the discussion around the activity of imipenem relobactam versus meropenem vaporbactam in, in NDR pseudomonas in particular the two parts. One has to do with FDA approval. Um, in particular, imipenemrilobactam has been approved for use in pseudomonas and has defined breakpoints. Where meropenemrilobactam doesn't currently, uh, this doesn't mean it has no potential activity. Uh, there was an ID week abstract last week, I think from the University of Michigan group. But I think imipenemrilobactam is a better case for carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas mechanistically. For instance, imipenemrilobactam has enhanced activity secondary to inhibition of imipenem hydrolyzing AMP-Cs. And there's some in vitro data that shows approximately 80% of imipenem resistant pseudomonas demonstrate in vitro susceptibility to imipenem relobactam. Yeah, really good review of the data and excellent points there, Kim. I think there's some very important differentiators between uh, imirel and meropenem vaporbactam that I want to just take a moment to, to, to talk about. Obviously, they're similar in that they both involve an anti pseudomonal carbapenem plus a novel beta lactamase inhibitor. But a major difference has to do with that beta-lactamase inhibitor. Baber-Bactam is relatively narrow spectrum. It was designed to be uh, very active specifically against KPCs and really doesn't have a broad spectrum of activity. It does, for example, doesn't have reliable AMPC inhibitory activity. Relobactam, on the other hand, is a broader spectrum carbapenemase. And in addition to uh, KPC inhibition, it also inhibits AMPC. And remember that uh, beta-lactam resistance, including carbapenem resistance, is often mediated, at least in part, by AMC hyperproduction in pseudomonas. Imipenemrolobactam typically is active against a wider array of these uh, resistant pseudomonas strains as compared to meropenem vaporbactam. Thank you both for those clarifications. Um, I know the nuances of the novel beta-lactamase inhibitor activities can be confusing, even for the biggest of us ID geeks. So I think it's always a good idea to, to review them again. 
Moving on a little bit from that particular topic, in the mix of questions from our viewers, we also received numerous comments and questions regarding formulary considerations and cost justifications for one or more of these novel agents. So what are the agents on your respective hospital formularies? How do their costs compare? And how do you cost justify your formulary at your medical center? I'll go ahead and uh, start this off by saying currently at University of Maryland, we have Ceftaz Evi back down, Toltaz and Meropam they were back down, but we're considering the addition of Imipamrel back to Mensafiracol. We just haven't gotten there yet just because of how the world is right now. Uh, we're able to justify use of these agents through a relatively high rate of CRE and MDR pseudomonas. And as we talked about a bit in the presentation, using the newer agents over the polymyxin or immunoglycoside-based regimens leads to overall better patient outcomes. So even though these agents are expensive outside the silo of drug costs, it's hard not to justify having at least one of them on formulary. Having multiple does become a bit trickier. And I will say that these agents are on formulary here, but they're restricted to ID at our site. And in particular, we decided to keep both Kazavi and Meropamvir back down because at our institution, we see a fair bit of OXA48 producing enterobacteriaceae. So kind of something I talked about on the presentation with local epidemiology, we just didn't get rid of that agent altogether for Meropamvir back down because we saw a little niche for it. Imipenemrelobactam and Zafiracol, we're currently evaluating these against a series of clinical isolates to determine where they could potentially fit in our formulary. I will say without that local epidemiology, it's really hard to say where, where we would use these agents. And lastly, I just want to say many places have these agents as non-formulary, but available through IED or stewardship approval. So they keep a limited amount on site, but because they're non-formulary, they don't have to keep a certain par and they can return the unused product. So kind of keeping their costs down. And I think, I'm not sure, Julie, if you've got anything else to add in terms of formulary. Kim, I think that's that's a great approach that you've outlined. Our center has a slightly different epidemiology. Um, in South Carolina, we deal with a greater proportion of difficult-to-treat pseudomonas isolates as opposed to CRE. Um, and so we actually also have those same three agents that you mentioned currently on formulary and are evaluating our microbiology to determine if and where Imurel and Cifidorcal fit in. So very similar story there. We do restrict all these agents to infectious diseases prescribers, and we do also keep our supply at our two more central hospital campuses geographically to minimize PAR levels across the multi-hospital system. One last component that I think is an interesting um, add and probably a, a good topic for another day would be the concept of new technology add-on payments or NTAP payments for drugs like Meripen and Vibrobactam, which often come up in our formulary discussions since it makes it easier to cost justify the use of such agents locally. Yeah, at University of Michigan, we're in similar uh, situation. We have ceftolazine, tazobactam, ceftazdim, avibactam, Meropenem-Babrobactam and Arabocyclin all on formulary and are currently reviewing Imipenem-Relobactam and Zofiterocol. I will stress though, as you guys pointed out, these uh, in general are restricted to ID approval and uh, do have fairly strict uh, criteria for which their use is deemed to be um, appropriate. But you know, I, I really believe that there is a place for many of these agents on a formulary or at least having access to uh, these agents, even if they're not formally on formulary, as, uh, as Kim sort of de described, alternatives to quote-unquote formulary inclusion. And I really want to stress that while it's complicated and we have all these new agents and 
there's different beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations, and there's new beta-lactams coming out, and there's new tetracyclines. This is exciting. This is a new age of stewardship. And for those of you who, who are newer to the game, I mean, five years ago, it was colistin or bust. I mean, we didn't really have any other options. So we're not in the polymyxin age, and we're not 20 or 30 years ago in the carbapenem age, where you could have one, eight, one drug that could reliably treat all the different strains and all the different flavors or, or most of resistant gram negatives. And you now have multiple agents and there's no one single agent that's gonna treat everything or that even will treat most things. When deciding on which newer agent is best for a specific infection, there's nuances with regards to the pathogen, whether it's a non-fermenter or whether it's an Arbacteriaceae, and also nuances with regards to the type of resistance determinant as, as even the different type of carbapenemase can sway you from one agent, one newer agent to another. And I think this complex epidemiology of gram-negative resistance really presents a wonderful opportunity for stewardship teams to develop guidelines and algorithms to help clinicians make best therapeutic choices and for stewardship programs really to show uh, how important and vital they are to um, effective treatment of very sick and complex patients. I think it's also important on a case-by-case -case basis for stewardship personnel to be available beyond guidelines and algorithms. As we know, uh, patients don't read the guidelines and algorithms, and we tend to have allergies or weird situations play roles where patients don't exactly fit into our guidelines. And I will just say, unfortunately, we'll talk about this a little later, but because polymyxins are so cheap, there still is interest at sites to quote-unquote cost-save by using a very inexpensive polymyxins. And unfortunately, we often live or exist and have to cost justify in a silo mentality. We, I can tell you there's studies out there that are showing that the toxicities associated with polymyxins, particularly nephrotoxicity, are so much greater than those that we see with many of these newer agents. And the efficacy in many cases is not as good. So while you might save a few dollars or several dollars on your acquisition costs for the antibiotic, in terms of one, the ethical consequences for not preventing the suffering and not preventing mortality risk to your greatest deal, that's one huge thing for administrators and hospital leadership to consider. And the other is the indirect costs. When you move outside of that pharmacy silo, the duration of hospitalization that increases with toxicity, or with a, a prolonged duration of bacteremias or, or poor efficacy. So, you know, cost is relative. And I know sometimes we feel like we're, we're yelling into a vacuum, but it's the truth. And it, we just have to stick with it and keep sticking to the, the need for safe, effective choices. Even if the acquisition cost is more expensive, believe me, they're often gonna be cost saving in the long run. Thank you, Keith. I, I very much appreciate that historical perspective. It is very difficult and time-consuming to review each of these novel agents, but from what I'm hearing you say, essentially, we need to stop complaining because this is a high-quality problem relative to where we were even five or ten years ago. Is that right? Julie, I'm giving a historical perspective, so I, you know, I am mean, getting a few gray hairs, but now <laughs> I guess I'm going to take that as a compliment. I think I'm historical. I didn't so, say you uh, were there <laughs> 10 years ago. I just said it was the oh, historical was. perspective. <laughs> no, I, I do think it's important that, you know, just because we keep getting the same answers and we keep feel like we're banging our head against the wall, it doesn't mean that our points are wrong. 
or that they're not true and that they don't make sense. And, and we can't give up on the basic arguments of providing the best care and, and surprise, spoiler alert, often the best quality care and the most effective care ultimately is cost saving when you're looking at the whole picture of patient care. Well, I can tell you, you, you've convinced me. I drank, I drank the Kool-Aid, but I'm still going to ask you another question to maybe try to save a little bit of money on my pharmacy drug budget. So the next question I have for you guys is similar formulary question, but we'll bring it down to size a bit. Have your facilities started using aravacycline instead of tigacycline? And kind of a follow-up to that, what is the role of amatacycline on formulary, if any? That's a good question, Julie. Uh, we have added a ribocycline to our formulary, but we are not using it in place of tigacycline routinely. It does have some advantages. It, it tends to be more potent, particularly against difficult to treat organisms like acinetobacter. Omatocycline is available as both IV formulation and oral formulation, and I think it has a primary role as an alternative to fluoroquinolones in the treatment of CAP and possibly in some types of skin and skin structure infection. I think the oral formulation is a particularly attractive. It does have activity against some types of resistant uh, uh, gram-negative organisms and might have a role in sort of more chronic suppressive treatment scenarios. Uh, I really, I'm not sure there's a huge opportunity for inpatient use for matocycline, but I do think that there probably are some outpatient niches. From our perspective here at Maryland, starting with the ticocycline or ravocycline part of the question, we actually switched over from ticocycline to ravocycline pretty early on. Our ID teams use these types of agents in combination for intra-abdominal infections caused by our multi-drug resistant organisms, our MDR, Acinobacter, and CRE, on a pretty regular basis. And we discussed kind of similar to what we did in the previous talk, the PK differences and the in vitro activity. It really made the decision to remove ticocycline and switch to ravitycline seem not much of a loss for us. In terms of amatocycline, it seems to have more of a role, like he said, in the outpatient have has been approved with CAP SSTIs. We haven't seen a particular need to review it for inpatient formulary. And I, I don't think it comes up very much in terms of requests either from an inpatient perspective. Wonderful. I, I think you guys summarized it Really great. Another big consideration for formulary management that we got uh, questions on was determining if susceptibility tests for the new agent are readily obtainable. Um, along those same lines, out of curiosity, where are you sending clinical isolates for imipenem, relabactam, and cefiterocol susceptibility testing? So I can only speak to our experience. Uh, I've actually been helping out the micro labs try and get these tests validated in-house as again, we've been completely swamped with the pandemic and COVID-19 testing. This has been a hat that I didn't think I'd wear, but I'm trying to get these things approved, digging through the freezers, trying to find some clinical isolates to test it against. We haven't gotten that far in terms of that. So as we've been dealing with these pathogens, where we want to test like imipenemrelobactam or cefiterocol, we've been sending them to a local sister hospital for testing. It is important to note that there are FDA-approved available tests for these, whether it's hardy discs or MIC test strips. They just need to be invalidated in-house before they can be reported for clinical use. Also, one of the things we've come up against that I did want to point out, as of when we're recording this, uh, ARAP hasn't validated Zephyrocall testing, so you can't send it to them for any testing. You know, Kim, I've had a similar experience when I was at Wayne State and Detroit Medical Center a few years back. Uh, using uh, discs and MIC test strips that we validated internally. But I don't want you guys to hate me, but now that I'm at U of M, I am very fortunate as we use broth market dilution 
susceptibility testing pretty much across the board for our pathogens. And what is the biggest advantage of that is that we can actually customize our panels to include even the newer agents on routine panels, or if necessary, we can test newer agents against pathogens on an ad hoc basis. So we can run amipenemrelobactam and cefitoprol susceptibilities routinely as we do on our non-fermenter panels. Uh, but we also, if we have a pathogen for which we want to test it, but it's not on the panel already, we, we can have the lab do that with another BMD test. Oh man, I think if you're trying to make him and I jealous, you've totally succeeded, Keith. <laughs> Locally, we've been able to order the commercial tests for Amirail and Cifidor, call that Kim described as well but it took a lot of work for a microbiology staff uh, to validate this. This was pre-COVID era. I think if I asked them now, um, I would struggle to get that done. So shout out, first of all, to all of our microbiology colleagues who are listening, who make incorporation of these uh, novel agents into clinical practice possible. To get even fancier in the lab, do either of you employ synergy testing? And one viewer specifically asked for pan-drug-resistant acinetobacter, which synergy combination are you using and based on what? So where I am right now, we do not have in-house synergy testing readily available. I think one of the things I, I miss about Detroit is being able to send them just across the street to like the ARL or something and have them do some synergy testing for you. I would like to have that, but unfortunately, I think we're aligned with most places that we don't have that available to us. So we really rely on previously published in vitro studies to help guide our decision-making instead. In particular, we talked about earlier, the combination of a beta-lactam and polymyxin such as Amsalbactam and polymyxin or Amsalbactam marrow and polymyxin. And for XDR organisms, that combination in particular is what I usually rely on because it just previously published in vitro data that demonstrates pretty good activity overall. Kim, just like you guys, we don't have in-house synergy testing. I do agree the meropen and polymyxin combination is a good bet for synergy. Also, I think combination with a polymyxin along with aminocycline, taiga, or ravacycline, particularly if they have in vitro activity, can be a, a valuable combination. And if we're truly pan-drug resistant, where you have R's across the board, and maybe even for your colistant, uh, in those cases, you know, triple therapy, as you're saying, possibly with sulbactam, meropenem, polymyxin, plus or minus, aminocycline, tigocycline, and ravocycline, you're sort of, you know, in the wild west in, in those situations. Absolutely. For even more fun in the lab, I think all of us kind of feel at home there. Can you discuss any advice or experience with rapid diagnostic testing platforms? So, for example, Accelerate Pheno, Veragene, CarboNP, and so on. Are there any helpful pros and cons that you've noticed regarding these current systems that are out on the market? I'll go ahead and get started and kind of take the question and steer it towards blood where I'm most comfortable and just get up on my soapbox for a couple minutes. Currently here at Maryland, we use a combination of Molitoff and Veragene. We can fill an entire hour just kind of talking about the nuances of the different rapid diagnostic tests and platforms. But briefly, Molitoff, it's got a fairly extensive panel of organisms that it can identify outside of the talk today, but like yeast, mold, mycobacterium, against a reference library. It's used to identify resistance is more experimental. There's nothing really approved, but it, there are publications looking at its potential to identify resistance. That's just kind of further down the road. In terms of other molecular tests, I'm thinking uh, BioFire, BCID, Veragene Blood Culture Panel, Genmark, Eplex, BCID. They have slightly more limited organism identification, 
but they do have the ability to identify some key genetic resistance markers uh, for both the gram positives and gram negatives. But not, not really to self-assure, they do detect about 90% of the pathogenic organisms that lead to bloodstream infections, but there are some differences in terms of what they can identify. There's also some important nuanced differences between these panels. For instance, BioFire BCID, the gram-negative panel, it was just recently updated, I think this year. I'm not sure how many places have actually implemented it, but prior to that new BCID2 panel, it didn't actually have CTXM, a marker for ESBL production, on its panel. So this was a major gap in the system compared to like Veragene that did have that, especially in places that had a lot of ESBL production. On the flip side, Veragene doesn't identify serratia in the States. It does in Europe, but not here. I'm not sure why. And that might be important depending on your local infectious epidemiology again. Veragene also not the best in terms of polymicrobial infections, but that's a whole other thing as well. It's also important just overall for these types of panels that they have limited predictive ability for resistance detection in our non-lactose fermenters. So Pseudomonas in general, not, not great for detecting resistance. And then Vrasneobacter outside the oxid producing doesn't do much for us for that either. In terms of Accelerate Pheno, I don't actually have any personal experience, but it seems like an exciting system, but with some practical limitations that still needs consideration. Without going too far into the weeds, Accelerate does give phenotypic susceptibilities for, it's a shorter list, even shorter than the moleculars like Biofire and Veragene but it does give us those phenotypic susceptibilities as well. The ID is usually within an hour or so. The susceptibilities, I think, are about seven hours later. One could argue that if you have a pheno in place, having something like a biofire or a veragene in addition to get those molecular markers such as CTXM or KBC faster would be beneficial. I do see a role for having the SINR. However, it might be helpful for de-escalation in gram negatives where I'm sure we can all agree it's often to de-escalate even in the absence of a resistance marker using the rapid diagnostics. I think we all have experienced trying to do that. But overall, I think it's really important to do a critical evaluation of what your local needs are and how they compare to the panel that you're looking at. Because uh, there's, again, kind of like this whole talk in terms of all these different antibiotics we're talking about, there's no one size fits all, no one magic bullet for these systems. I couldn't agree with you more, Kim. I We have been anxiously awaiting the CTXM for our BioFire BCID panels, for example. Um, so while we still use those current panels and are waiting for that kind of missing target, we've really benefited from the addition of the serratia on the same panel due to our large hemodialysis population locally, which does have some fair frequency of uh, serratia bacteremias. So I think that just goes to your point about there being no magic bullet and really having to customize to your local epidemiology. I think it's always a learning curve when deciding to mix and match the systems as well. I can say locally we're embarking on the addition of Accelerate Pheno to our lab here in South Carolina. And I always love to hear how other folks have come up with their current micro rapid diagnostic test suite based on their local epi. Turfing the question to you, Keith, what do you think about the current rapid diagnostics on the market? Well, first thing I'll say is when I was at DMC, we, we did some research work with Accelerate Pheno, and we actually had some other technology for rapid diagnostics in place already. And where I think that Accelerate Pheno really provided opportunities for us was for rapid de-escalation. I think uh, we found that there were opportunities to stop agents. We weren't missing with our current systems, we weren't having many cases of ineffective empiric therapy, but it definitely would have afforded us if we had fully implemented it, 
to de-escalate and maybe avoid broad spectrum antibiotic days uh, more effectively. At University of Michigan, we use a combination of Multitoff and Veragene. But you know, I also want to stress that while, I mean, Kim gave an incredible uh, uh, technical uh, review and also a practical review of these uh, pros and cons of these different platforms, that regardless of which expensive shiny new toy that you pick, the purchase and implementation of novel cool technology alone does nothing. That is not going to stop an antibiotic. That's not going to save a life. You have to have the infrastructure in place in order to optimize the impact of this technology, regardless of which RDT platform that you go with. You need stewardship personnel. Again, it's a great opportunity to show your value. Steward personnel are the links between the micro lab and the patient getting the right drug. They can interpret that RDT results are not easy to interpret. They can help with interpretation and they can help with rapid action. It's all how that technology is used and key collaborations to optimize the use of RDTs to improve patient care include clinical microbiology laboratory collaborations, which often the Clin Micro Lab plays a very important role in stewardship teams, and also looping in your EMR experts to try to get alerts or notifications put in place uh, regarding RDT results or to put in very effective messaging that can help clinicians to more easily interpret some of the rather long, complex reports that are sort of canned reports from different RDT platforms. Yeah, I completely agree with Keith. Time and time again, the available literature shows that having some kind of ID stewardship, active review and oversight of these results is really what's driving the improved clinical outcomes and just kind of putting it out there in the ether and in the patient charts isn't really what's making it work. It's having someone actually actively implement it and just having clinical micro and IT support obviously is essential. So I think you already shouted out to clinical micro, but we can keep shouting out to them. <laughs> I, think they, I think they've earned it, especially during COVID. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that makes, uh, and I know for me personally, it can be daunting to look at all these different RDD panels, but I think the point that you both are making really well is that it's not what you pick as much as how you use it. So the devil's in, in the details there for implementation. All right, well, thank you guys for, for going down that rabbit hole with us regarding rapid diagnostic tests. Hopefully the viewer got their question answered on that one. And just to switch gears a bit, but still staying within the microbiology lab, one listener was interested in hearing your thoughts on the recent CLSI polymyxin breakpoint changes. And I know we've got some polymyxin experts on this podcast episode. So what's your take on this change, Keith? Well, yeah, Julie, as our listeners might be aware, CLSI over the past year uh, changed the interpretation of breakpoints for colistin and polymyxin B as well to intermediate if the MIC is less than or equal to two or if it's greater than two resistant. So what's missing here? There's no susceptible category. I have to say I'm a little ambivalent about this in one level as an ID expert clinician to not see the susceptible when I really need colistin. And if I didn't know about what the changes were and, and why CLSA did this, I would just be really confused and I might have to call the micro lab and it might really complicate uh, the decision of using polymyxins when they're appropriate. Now, the flip side is why they did this, I think is novel. And I don't know that CLSI has done anything parallel or similar to this with other agents. 
They did this in part because colistin and polymyxin B have major PK limitations, particularly colistin. And as you know, uh, both colistin and poly B have significant toxicity issues, particularly nephrotoxicity. So they have major problems as agents, but now we have newer and safer options that are out there in many cases, not all, but in many cases, there are these newer agents, which, which we've talked about. Many are, are beta-lactams and then beta-lactam inhibitor combinations. You now have these available agents. So really CLSI is trying to steer clinicians away from using polymyxins unless they absolutely have to. Polymyxins, I think in many cases or most cases are reserved today for treatment of XDRS nidobacter as we discussed earlier, when there's no other good therapeutic alternative available. And in many cases, you'll be using polymyxins in combination, not even as monotherapy. So it's a very interesting, I think, What's more interesting than the change in breakpoint itself is the reasoning behind it. And the reasoning behind it makes sense to me. I just have to get used to not looking for that S and not being able to find it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm getting images of, of Jason Gallagher's like garbage bin on fire when it comes to talking about polymyxins, especially when you start thinking about the fact that the therapeutic index of those drugs is apparently non-existent. So to me, I think it's nice to be in a situation because of the newer agents that have come out where we can, for the most part, put colistin and polymyxin B back up on the shelf where they belong. Things have certainly changed from when I was a fellow. I still get flashbacks of struggling to dose polymyxins in a manner that doesn't also put my patient on dialysis. So I thank the, the viewer for that particular question. It's certainly an interesting topic, and we'll have to see how things roll out in terms of implementation. Dosing was a hot topic for many of our viewers as well. One viewer mentioned some clinicians are using meropenem 2 grams IVQ8 as a standard infusion in non-obese patients to treat ESBL bacteremia, even though the Merino trial used 1 gram IVQ8. So those clinicians argue that meropenem vaporbactam studies use the equivalent of meropenem 2Q8, uh, demonstrating that that amount or dosing regimen of meropenem was in fact safe. So the question the viewer had for you both was, do you have a preference between one gram IVQ8 hours versus two grams IVQ8 hours of meropenem for ESBL bacteremia? So I think the discussion of meropenem dosing in ESBL bloodstream infections really needs to be extended beyond just the dichotomy of ESBL, BSI, yes or no. So I'm going to kind of like usurp some of that question and switch it around a bit and say the consideration for which dose to use in my mind depends on you know, the source of the bloodstream infection, the patient acuity, the meropenem MIC, and obviously this is all in consideration of their renal function. For instance, if a suspected source of ESI was CNS, or if the patient was septic and hyperdynamic, I would obviously lean towards that more aggressive dose. On the flip side, there is also consideration for meropenem pharmacodynamic dosing, which is usually 500 milligrams every six hours. But I'm not actually sure how often that's used in clinical practice, but the idea there is to increase the frequency to increase your time above MIC as well. I'd say it really does depend on the ability to reach your PKBD target in your given patient with your given organism causing that infection. Yeah, you know, Kim, I really, excellently stated. I lean towards higher dosing, particularly in critically ill patients and those, like you said, with deep-seated infections. 
and particularly in cases of bacteremia and sepsis. And also, particularly if you have an uncontrolled or unknown source of infection, these are other times when I will really try, try to push that dose. Yeah, your practices mirror our local policy of, quote, go big or go home for these serious infections. In a similar effort to maximize PKPD, another viewer wondered if there was any data for extending the infusion duration for imipenem relabactam given its short stability of two hours at room temperature. I haven't come across any data personally for any extended infusion imipenem relabactam. I defer to the rest of the group if they've got any experience. So I would say in South Carolina, we've only used this agent a handful of times, but um, we've just followed the package insert dosing of 30-minute infusions for Imurel to this point. Hopefully more data on this BLBLI combination will be coming out soon, hopefully from some of our very own SIDP members over the next year or so. I know we're always looking at ways to kind of eke out every last bit of activity from, from these agents. Along the same lines, another viewer asked if we should be using extended infusion ceftolazine tazobactam to optimize the PKPD of this agent. That's a great question. And I know that as opposed to what we were just talking about with imipenemrelobactam, there is actually some data and discussion around extended infusion toltaz. Uh, there's an older paper, and by older, I just mean like 2017, so older by data from these drug standards. I looked at alternative dosing for toltaz in Pseudomonas, uh, particularly with elevated MICs between 4 and 32. And it used some PK and Monte Carlo simulations. And they actually determined that extending the infusion to four or five hours improved probability of target attainment with these elevated MICs in the Pseudomonas. I think Julia might have some more experience with continuous infusion toltaz than I do. Well, I mean, we saw a lot of that same data that, that you were alluding to from Drs. Pai and Lodis. And like I mentioned earlier, we, we do have an issue with difficult to treat pseudomonas. So our group in South Carolina, we've presented at previous meetings on a few patient cases for whom we've used Toltaz 6 grams IV as a continuous infusion over 24 hours. And that's based on its stability data. And then again, as you mentioned, some of this PKPD simulation data. It has been especially helpful for the extensively drug-resistant pseudomonas isolates in either a handful of our cystic fibrosis patients or left ventricular assist device or LVAD driveline infection cases. We've done a little bit of therapeutic drug monitoring on the Toltaz, suggesting adequate target attainment of both the ceftolazine and tazobactam components, and the patients were generally stable while on therapy. They had variable outcomes because you can probably imagine if they have XDR pseudomonas, it's because they've had it for a while and it's probably incurable due to lack of source control. So I expect not just our group, but others are going to continue to kind of look at Toltaz continuous infusions and, and we hopefully will get more of our data out there soon. All right. So we're going to keep on this train of pharmacy aspects. So we talked a little bit about dose and, and, infusion rates, but we also had some questions about duration. So one viewer asked, quote, for the duration of treatment of gram-negative bacteremia, should we wait for the negative culture and then stop the antibiotic after 14 days, or does this practice only apply to gram-positive bacteremia? Keith, what do you think? Well, you know, there's not clearly a single right answer here. I'd say 14 days is the conservative time-tested approach for non-complicated bacteremia. 
in, in many cases. But, you know, there was a recent trial from Israel a few years ago with Mikhail Paul's group that looked at seven versus 14 days in certain disease states with gram-negative bacteremia, for example, urosepsis or catheter-related bacteremia. In those cases, seven patients receiving seven days did very well. It was very, very fa favorable. So, you know, I think if there's prompt clinical response and microbiological response, i.e. clearance of the blood, and patients are on effective therapy, I think seven days makes, makes a lot of sense. I think you have to be a little bit careful with the in terms of the immune status of the patient. You have to rule out things like endocarditis or osteomyelitis or deep-seated sources of infection. And you have to make sure that they actually microbiologically clear their infection, particularly when we're talking about the bloodstream. Right. One of the other things I, I also noticed that this viewer probably picked up on, there seems to be a general gaining steam of this concept of repeat blood cultures for gram-negative bacteremia, which is certainly standard of care for something like a Staph aureus bacteremia, but is used intermittently for gram-negatives. One of the things that I'll just add, I did come across a recent study by Mascarinic and colleagues that was published as an observational cohort study in CMI, looking at gram-negative bacteremia patients with repeat blood cultures. Some did and some did not get repeats. Of those that had repeats obtained, they found an association that those individuals had significantly lower all-cause and hospital mortality compared to those who did not have repeat blood cultures measured. So that's a mortality of 15% versus 20% that they found. When they looked in more detail at the subgroup of patients that did have repeat cultures performed, the cases with a positive repeat culture were associated with increased mortality compared to those with negative repeat cultures, mortality 21% versus 11%. So I've seen a couple of other handful of data coming out, and I'm actually hopeful to see if maybe at ID Week this year, some of the other international conferences will see a little bit more discussion about whether or not repeat blood cultures should they be used, and if so, in whom. So I'm excited to see a little bit more research in that area. All right, so moving on, both of you have discussed some interesting nuances in the data for these novel agents against gram-negative pathogens. One reviewer wanted to know, quote, do you see a clinical role for cefiterocol considering the clinical trial results, including the increased mortality, seem incredible? Any news on the APEX NP trial results? Credible CR, we talked about it a bit in the presentation, but it, it is a small study with a limited sample size, but definitely took some of the window of our sales when it came to enthusiasm for widespread use of cefiracol in MDR gram negatives, in particular our non-lactose fermenters, our MDR pseudomonas and acinobacter, really where the need is greatest. I don't think these results completely agree to using these types of infections, but it, it is something we still have to consider and evaluate critically. In terms of the Apex MP trial, it was presented at ID Week last year, I think. It was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized, non-figured, you know, the usual type of sephericol against dose-optimized marrow in nosocomial pneumonia caused by gram-negative organisms. The data that was presented at ID Week in the modified intention to treat group of almost 300 patients, day 14 all-cause mortality was 12.4% versus 11.6%, so not different in those treated with sephericol versus meropenem. And additionally, clinical and microbiological cures were similar between the groups in that study. Yeah, you know, Kim, I agree that uh, Credible was, was a bit of a buzzkill for us. Um, those of us looking to 
put the stake through the heart of the polymyxins. We, we, we're not quite there yet because we don't have our answer to the unmet need of uh, XCRS needle bacter. Cifidoracol has a wonderful in vitro profile, and it actually did well, as Kim pointed out, in the Apex NP trial. I do think there are concerns about its use in a severely ill patients, particularly as Kim was pointing out, with multidrug or XDR type gram-negative infections, particularly non-fermenters and particularly acinetobacter. So I do think that cefiteracol is a viable option for these types of pathogens, but I would be very cautious about using this as monotherapy and particularly in severely ill patients who have these types of infections. Thank you both for um, tackling that that tough question and, and going in the weeds there. Keith, this next question is more for you. You discussed that increased use of imipenem for ESBLs has led to higher rates of carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas in the literature. Does ertapenem also lead to increased carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas, or does it spare that given its lack of pseudomonas coverage? Yeah, Julie, I mean, you make a good point here, you make a nice segue to uh, what, what I think is one of the big advantages of ertapenem with regards to inpatient uh, antimicrobial stewardship. It is the fact that it's negligible activity against the non-fermenters, including both pseudomonas as well as acinetobacter. So therefore, it does provide less selective pressure for carbapenem resistance than does meropenem or emipenem or doripenem. And I think if you're at a hospital where there are major concerns or major problems with carbapenem resistance within uh, your acinetobacter or pseudomonal populations, I do think it's a very viable stewardship intervention to try to use ertapenem in place of meropenem or imipenem. When you need a carbipenem, but if you can use erta instead, I do think you're going to reduce that selective antibiotic pressure on pseudomonas and acinetobacter. And I do think substitution in those situations, such as certain types of ESBL infections, I do think substitution of ertapenem for one of these anti-pseudomonal carbipenems is a viable and a practical stewardship intervention. Thanks, Keith. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so Kim, that one was for Keith. I'm gonna turf this one to you. Has there been any good literature to show if Toltaz resistant isolates are susceptible to CASAVI? That's also a great question. And something I kind of touched on during the talk, but again, very quickly, I think you could make hour-long talks out of a lot of these different topics. Um, but there is some in vitro data presenting susceptibilities for pseudomonas uh, and, and MDR pseudomonas for Toltaz versus CAS-AVI in parallel, um, some of which we talked about briefly again. Uh, these studies, you can see that some isolates are CAS-AVI resistant and then Toltaz susceptible and vice versa. Uh, one of the studies, as an example, paper for Romney Humphreys in 2017, it looked at activity of these two agents in some 300 beta-lactam resistant pseudomonas. Among these isolates, about 72.5% were susceptible to Toltaz and 61.8% to CASAVI. Among the Toltaz resistant isolates, 9.1% were CASAVI susceptible, whereas 36.4% uh, of the CASAVI resistant isolates were Toltaz susceptible. And I think the takeaway also I wanted to 
point out in this talk was that resistance and pseudomonas, as we kind of talked about throughout, is a complex interplay of multiple mechanisms. So it's really hard to generalize these. Um, for instance, ceftolzane is less susceptible to hydrolysis from AMPC and less impacted by porons than ceftaz, but then ceftaz has the hepabactam with it that inhibits ESBL-type beta-lactamases and also inhibits some class A carbapenemases. So it's, it's not something that we're able to place a broad statement on and really, again, depends kind of on your local infectious epidemiology and the mechanisms that kind of, for pseudomonas, still kind of remain a mystery to us because we don't have those rapid moleculars to tell us what's going on in there. Yeah. I think, Kim, you raise uh, good points. Um, I, it's interesting. At Michigan, I guess we're different in many ways. Um, we actually, ceftazime avibactam is actually more active versus pseudomonas as compared to ceftolazine tazobactam, but both perform very well. I will point out this is not the norm. Kim, I think you summarize what the norm is, that ceftolazine tazobactam is in general more active than ceftazime avibactam. Um, we are currently exploring the molecular causes of uh, this sort of uh, discrepant um, resistance findings, particularly honing in our, our ceftazime, uh, ceftazime bactam susceptible ceftolas and tazobactam resistant isolates. Uh, there have been reports of mutant uh, AMPCs or organisms that produce mutant AMPCs that uh, can uh, cause an activation of um, ceftolas and tazobactam, but uh, not ceftazime avibactam. And we're, currently trying to figure out why. So again, it's nice to have both on formulary. Uh, you never know when you might need a ceftazime avibactam, not just for a CRE or an ESBL, but, but maybe for that weirdo uh, pseudomonal resistance strain. Keith, that's that's so interesting that you guys have seen that as well. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we've got a lot of pseudomonas, so you can imagine Tiltaz is, is our workhorse. Um, but I've seen at least two isolates that have emerged Tiltaz resistant, and something's going on with the Kazavi and maybe even some of the other BLBLIs. So I, I honestly can't wait to to read what you guys find. Um, uh, let me know. <laughs> Um, just to finish up with this kind of the last few rapid fire questions that we have as we near the end of this podcast episode. Um, so I'm going to go real quick here. What promising novel antimicrobials are coming down the pipeline? Any anticipated gaps that they'll fill, such as oral options? I think the last couple of years we've seen a great deal of new drugs approved and Keith's talked about this, um, but we have a ton of new drugs approved for MDR-gram negatives that we're very fortunate for. And it's very exciting, but I think also the pipeline is not all the most stable. Um, thinking about what I have read about in the pipeline, there's some novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations in production, some of which have the potential to fill some gaps, uh, again with the MDRS neobacter, which we've talked about here. It's hard to really speak to what seems promising because things that go to phase two, phase three to approval and then widespread availability, it's just hard to say. And I don't really feel like I have the ability to say exactly what novel agents are going to make it to our hospitals and our formularies. Fair enough. Next question. If a patient is colonized with a multidrug resistant organism, can they spread the disease? And if so, then should they be treated? So these types of colonized patients absolutely can spread the disease. And essentially, in many cases, they can spread the disease or spread the pathogen just as effectively as a patient who might be actually, quote unquote, infected. But, spoiler alert, 
treatment of the colonized patient with antibiotics is absolutely not effective in eradicating colonization. This is particularly true with gram negatives and particularly true with the gut, organisms colonizing the gut. And actually, treatment of colonized bacteria can actually make things worse. From a resistance standpoint, in some studies, actually can lead to more increased likelihood of invasive infection and, of course, things like C. difficile. Infection control is the key here for reducing spread and, and you know, hand hygiene, contact precautions, environmental clearing. But also stewardship is important, and it's not which antibiotic to use. It's not using antibiotics and limiting unnecessary antibiotic use. By doing so, you prevent overgrowth, the crabgrass analogy, where if you have a little bit of CRE in your gut and you start giving people antibiotics, that CRE takes over your healthy gut, and suddenly you have a, a whole big old gut full of CRE, and, and it might increase the likelihood of one patient uh, uh, causing spread of their CRE uh, throughout the hospital. So do not treat colonization. You will not eradicate the MVRO by doing so. Got it. We heard you loud and clear. Don't treat the colonized. Next question. Are any of these medications indicated for the pediatric population? Uh, also a great question. And pediatrics is something that we didn't really talk about in the presentation and something that I'm not overly familiar with. So I had to actually go look this up. But uh, for these, these agents, CASAVI has been FDA approved for use in pediatric populations. Uh, it was approved last year for complicated UTI and intra-abdominal for ages three months to 18 years. Uh, it's also important to note, even though that's the only one that's approved, the other ones have been discussed and studied to various degrees in terms of PKPD and optimal dosing and even some case series, um, Toltaz, Imipenemrelobactam, Meropenemrelobactam, and Sphericol. And some of these are actually currently being studied in phase two or phase three clinical trials in pediatric populations. So imipenemrelobactam, meropenemrelobactam, and sephericol do have active ongoing trials. Thanks, Kim. I know our pediatric colleagues definitely appreciate um, any information that we can provide uh, for their specific patient population. All right, can you expand on the idea that candida albicans in a sputum culture rarely indicates that an infectious process is underway? Yep, Julie, excellent question. And candida just is not a typical pneumonia pathogen. And why this is in terms of pathophysiologically, I don't know. I, there are a lot of people who know much more about candida than do I. But where we typically see it in respiratory cultures is when it grows or overgrows in the setting of broad spectrum antibiotic therapy. And really, almost always, I would say, if short of a tissue biopsy that grows candida, of a, a tissue biopsy of the lung parenchyma, Canada is going to be a colonizer. And I absolutely would avoid routine treatment of Canada in the sputum. Um, I, what I've seen done is when you have quantitative BAL cultures, rather than having the microlab report out greater than 10 to the fifth CFUs of Canada, which worries surgeons or intensivists and makes them want to treat it, the microlab won't even report that. They'll just say Canada present. Um, so it really, I would say, you never say never but it almost never is a true pneumonia pathogen and I should not be treated, except in very extreme rare scenarios. Thank you, Keith. That actually wraps up our last question uh, from our viewers that we wanted to touch on in this podcast. 
Um, so just as a reminder, we've had the pleasure of speaking today with Dr. Keith Kay from the University of Michigan and Dr. Kimberly Clays from the University of Maryland. I feel like I put you guys through the ringer. Uh, there was definitely some tough questions, probably a few different one-hour talks uh, that we could have already touched on today. So thank you both for being such good sports and sharing your expertise. Any last minute thoughts? I just want to thank you, uh, Julie, for um, NSIDP for inviting me and helping to set this up. I want to thank Kim, who I felt like uh, uh, carried the carried the load a lot and and provided excellent uh, insight. What I really enjoy about doing uh, these types of interactive discussions is I always learn a ton. Um, so I almost feel like it's cheating. Like uh, I've caught up on a lot of the literature here um, and had a really good time doing so. I just want to tell my uh, stewardship colleagues and uh, friends out there to keep up the good fight. Um, we appreciate, uh, uh, from a physician end, uh, we, we really appreciate all of your hard work and you are extremely valued. So thanks for everything. Well, it's hard to follow that, but um, I do agree that I just want to thank you, Julie, for coordinating these 150 questions into something manageable for us to talk about as well as SIDP for constantly putting out these educational experiences um, and just having the ability to do this podcast with both you and Keith is definitely nerve wracking, but also very, very fortunate for me because I think I've also learned a ton doing this. And yeah, I agree. Stewardship physicians, stewardship pharmacists, clinical micro, it's been, it's been a tough year. And I, I think that we all just need to keep our heads up and realize that we, how much we're actually making an impact. Absolutely. Again, a, a big shout out to both of you. I know it takes a lot of time to go through these questions and, and craft thoughtful answers, especially considering that they're challenging and some of them don't necessarily have, have a right or wrong answer at this point. So I know our listeners, I very much appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you again. And thank you to all of our listeners out there uh, for joining us today for this special episode of Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. This is Julianne Justo, hoping everyone stays safe during this time and keeps fighting the good fight against antimicrobial resistance. Please join us next time for more great conversations on all things ID.